Hello and welcome to Meet Our Makers, an artist interview podcast produced in association with Beats Per Minute. I am your host, Jeremy J. Fissett. On this episode, we get to meet Fleet Fox's frontman, Robin Pecknold. Robin just put out the fourth Fleet Foxes record in September called Shore. It was a bit of a surprise release. And in this chat, Robin and I discuss the motivations behind this type of release for him and how the coronavirus pandemic heavily influenced the songwriting and the general mood he was going for on this record. We talk at length about this record, but we also talk a bit about Crack Up, their last record, as well as the long gap between their acclaimed sophomore album, Helplessness Blues, and Crack Up. We also touch upon the distinct way he comes at songwriting, and how important music and making music is to his entire life. We also take a brief moment to revel in our shared love and profound appreciation for Joanna Newsom. So please enjoy and thank you for listening. This is me meeting Robin Pecknold. Yes, I can hear you. Awesome. Can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> I just got an email like two minutes ago that you that you joined the meeting. Oh, nice. And I was like, oh no, this is the first time my guest has gotten here before me. <laughs> you meant 4 p.m. Eastern, right? I did. Okay, cool. Yeah. No, you're in you're in Brooklyn, right? I'm in Manhattan, but yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm in Connecticut, so I, I knew that we were, I thought we were on the same timeline. Word. Um, so how are you doing? Good. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Sound you? good. Um, I'm good. I'm just getting back from work. I'm a, I'm a teacher, so I'm like <laughs> rushing to get home and yeah, and be here for this. Um, so thank you for joining me for this, for this chat. Totally. Um, so how have you... Uh, I mean, we'll talk about Shore, obviously, in, in a moment, but how have you been uh, doing with the uh, pandemic? How have you been coping? I know you've probably been working on this a lot, so hopefully that was helping. Yeah, I mean, I think I came back in March. We were working at the studio in L.A. before this. Um, came back to be at my the apartment I rent here for the lockdown. I was thinking that, you know, it might pass through New York fastest, um, hit New York maybe the hardest, but pass through the fastest or something. You know, that was my, my theory. Um, and so it was really just three months of not working at all. You know, the album was half done and it was quite an albatross, you know, like think, thinking about this half finished album that had no lyrics and that, um, you know, I didn't know when I'd get a chance to work again. And, and, you know, I didn't really think about it that much because, um, there was so much else going on that it was demanding everyone's attention, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in, you know, but then, you know, uh, I ended up r- realizing how lucky I am compared to so many people, I, I guess, not re- not realizing, I always have felt lucky and grateful for, you know, having a roof over my head and having, um, you know, being able to make music for a living. But, you know, just the stark contrast between like finding myself in this kind of lucky position here compared to so many people the last six months or so. Um, I guess that that ended up informing the record in a way that I couldn't have anticipated. And then in July, June, July, August, I was just 
working every single day trying to get this thing done for this, you know, surprise release in September and then finished it September 8th. And then um, since then, you know, it's, I've just been distracted with, with releasing the record and, and talking to people and, and, you know, enjoying seeing people's reactions. And um, so, you know, I'm like, I'm a, I feel a little guilty to say that I've, I've had a, a pretty okay time in this whole yeah in this whole circumstance all things considered well you were i mean you were keeping busy which is something that i think a lot of people were having trouble doing yeah um and it sounds like shore would not have been what it was without this pandemic then because as you're saying this sort of emotional current of the time was sort of informing your writing at the time yeah absolutely i don't know how it would have ended up because i was like pretty disappointed in all the lyrics i was writing you know, back in February, and I was just trying to like rewrite them, and 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 then you know, Homer. I hadn't met Homer Steinweiss yet, and he ended up playing drums on four or five songs, and um, I didn't have the song Featherweight. I didn't have the song Sunblind. I didn't have, you know, my Stranza. There was a lot of stuff that was just kind of big, big gaps, and I don't know how it would have turned out. You know, I was trying to get it. I was thinking I would power through to try and get it done by May, so that it could come out for you know September, and we would go on tour. Um, but I'm not sure that would have even happened, you know, so it's, it's, it was really weird to have a three month forced break in work, but then this explosion of, of creative work in the three months after that, that, that wasn't that, you know, that probably wouldn't have happened if, if not for the pandemic. Yeah. So, I mean, it does sound like, like you said, like you were kind of in a surprisingly fortunate position, um, despite everything. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just, you know, thanking my lucky stars every day for that. Right. Um, so why did you want to release Shore um, now? Because I, you said you were trying to finish by May to release in September. Was the plan always to release in September, even before the pandemic started? Well, I guess the plan would have been get it done by May or something. And then, you know, some of the summary or songs on the album have those coming out as singles throughout the summer uh, and then have the whole thing fall in September because there's, you know, fall type music on there too. Um, and I think that was the original plan. You know, when I was thinking about alternative options, obviously in this new world, um, the, the you know, people were still holding their records. People were holding their albums and then delaying them or, you know, um, People were talking about pushing stuff to next year. I didn't want to, I wanted to finish it just so that it was like off my mental plate, but I didn't want to sit on it then for eight months or something. Cause I don't even think touring is going to happen in 2021. I think that seems a little optimistic that it would get back up to speed that quickly. Yeah. In the way we've had, we've had it in the past. Yeah. So, and then to me, it was just like, you know, I think these plans were also coming together when there was, you know, I wish there were still as much attention on on systemic injustice and, and class consciousness as there was kind of in June and July. But in that context, I was just feeling like I didn't want to um, have some prolonged press campaign that was like, you know, hey, I also, and now here, look at this white dude with, um, you know what I mean? It just felt yeah. like, like it just, that just didn't feel like, coherent to me and it's felt generous to just be like oh let's just put it out all at once and um you know the whole album can be taken in context at once 
and tying it to the equinox was just a way to kind of like tie it to something that was, you know, non-social or non-societal or non-human or something, just kind of like, um, you know, we're so affected by all these things that are happening, but then, you know, we're also so affected by the seasons and by, um, you know, where the geography of where we live and, you know, there's, we're affected as much by um, that as we are by the state, our, you know, the state of our society at a given time. Mm -hmm. I just was like, well, let's just tie it in with that and and have the music kind of have a, a more kind of, cosmic frame than a like social frame or something yeah so then the the sort of seemingly anyway impulsive release um obviously it was in the works for a while but kind of does remove that whole like you said prolonged press like kind of almost like you didn't want to hog the spotlight away from the actual things going on yeah and i feel like now we can you know it seems like it's been pretty well received and and, you know we if we put out a video in in a couple weeks or if we put out a you know, another song or we do like a little show, you know, we can still do those things and people will maybe pay attention if they want to based on if they like the record or not and based and not based on if they'll like the record or not, you know? So that just feels a little more um, coherent also just, or kind of, you know, a little more, um, I don't know, that more my speed, you know, mentally or something. Yeah. Well, there's sort of like a, almost like a generosity in the strategy that that leaves a lot more up to the listeners as opposed to saying like I know all this other shit's going on but you're going to pay attention to us for six months until this album comes out yeah that's yeah yeah, that wouldn't feel good to me right now right um and I've seen I think you you told me and then also I think I've seen that you have another set of songs coming out next year well that's the plan I mean you know the plan okay that that was part of why I, I I that was I mean, I, you know, I didn't move forward with the kind of September 22nd thing until I had everyone's blessing on that other aspect of the idea. And, you know, I talked to every guy and everyone in the band and was like, hey, we can't tour for a while, you know, so what if we actually tried to write songs together for the first time? And then, you know, we're actually co-writers on something and, you know, explore that while we're kind of waiting for, for touring to get back up to speed. And, um, you know, once I had that, once everyone was on board with that aspect of this, then it made it much, you know, also made it easier to be like, hey, here's an album. Cause it's not like, you know, there's this other thing in the works too, that we, we have an idea of what to do with our time now until there's touring. And so if in fall 2021, there's like a 24 song version of Shore that comes out and we're able to go on tour to support it, you know, that's cool. Or if touring doesn't happen next year and it's just an extra nine songs that get added to Spotify or something. That's also cool too, you know? So is that what it would be? It would be like an expansion on shore. My idea is that it would actually go inside of the track listing and that waiting, oh, okay. waiting in waste high water and shore would remain the first and last songs kind of, but um, it would all, well, actually you would, the sequencing idea I had was that it would be a song for every hour of the day and that um, you would start, there would be no first or last song really, but you know, waiting waste high water would be like the 6am song. And then there would be something else for 7am before you got to Sunblind at 10am. You know, that kind of thing where there's the the order would be rearranged and the, the transitions between songs would be different. And then there would be nine more songs to make that whole cycle. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. 
Um, and that'll be, you said that'll be like the first time that the band has ever actually co-written as a band. Yeah. So you are sort of the one writer in the studio and then the band takes it on the road. Is that what usually happens? That has been how it's been on every album since 2008. Okay. Um, so there was a relatively short time between Crack Up and Shore, um, at least relatively for you guys, because there was a larger break between Helplessness Blues and Crack Up. Um, and I, as a listener, I've noticed that Shore does, uh, I don't know if, if you disagree with me, but as a listener, it comes off as sort of less structurally complex, like there's less moving parts and it's sort of just here are 15 songs. It's a little more straightforward, whereas Crack Up seemed a bit more experimental. Mm-hmm. Um, was there some sort of like desire for m- more simplicity or just like a clearer sort of distillation of what you wanted to do? Like, why did you sort of, to me, it seems like you guys sort of like pared down just a bit. Um, I think, you know, the, uh, I wanted to kind of like take whatever lessons were learned from Crack Up and kind of from both the other records too, a little bit and kind of um, do something that felt a little more like Velvet Underground Loaded or something where it's just a bunch of solid short songs. You know, that felt like the challenge that was exciting to me after doing the opposite of that with Crack Up. Um, and I wanted it to be complimentary to Crack Up. Like, I didn't want it to be like, uh, you know, totally like, uh, I didn't want it to feel like it was a referendum on that album at all because I really love that album and I'm really proud to have made it. But I wanted to find, you know, it just didn't, doing that same thing again um, didn't seem like, um, didn't seem like um, the most exciting possible challenge, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was thinking about like, you know, less, more about the ways songs could be, um, you know, the, you um, uh, sorry, how do I say this? Huh. Like less about making an eight minute song out of four two minute segments and more like making three, two to three minute songs that had some subliminal like connection, either tempo wise or chord progression wise, like long way past the past into for a week or two into my stronza. Like there are chord motifs in my stronza that are just um, minor variations of the chord motifs on long way past the past hmm. um and you know that that is you know so i kind of i was thinking about that's like a three song stretch that i'm kind of seeing as one song in the same way that third of may is a one song that has three parts you know um and and i but i wanted to do it in a more subtle way than on you know because crack up a lot of the you know uh, it, it was a lot of like shock value i guess sometimes and how that stuff was structured and and um, I think if that again, that would feel like a little bit cheap. And so it was more about building these gradient transitions between songs or between sections of songs um, and, and less of the kind of, um, less of the, uh, the loud, quiet, loud kind of crack up vibe. Right. Um, so what are some of the then sort of like thematic conclusions that you were reaching with Shore that you hope that people sort of maybe get out of it? Uh, lyrically yeah just lyrically uh tone wise even just like what were you kind of 
what was driving this album? Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, I wanted to make something that was like less, you know, I, I feel like the lyrics on Helplessness Blues, you know, that was coming out of a very kind of existentially fraught period. And there's a lot of like just bald asking of questions about what the future will be. I feel like the lyrics on Crack Up were like meaningful to me, but they were like pretty encoded because I was talking about stuff that I'm, that I wasn't really comfortable talking, like talking that sometimes they were just like too encoded. And I was, the, the stuff I was having, the stuff I had to talk about was stuff I wasn't really comfortable with being that explicit with. And so I think on this one, I wanted to be very direct and not, you know, not hide behind anything. And, um, and I also wanted to kind of cede the spotlight to other singers and cede the lyrical spotlight to other people's concerns and other people's, um, uh, you know, my feelings about other people, if they're my friends or family, if they're heroes I've had or, you know, whatever it is. And um, I think that, you know, that's one reason that the first song is sung by someone else and, you know, and why the first thing I say when the, when the vocal comes in is for Richard Swift, you know, just kind of like, as clear as 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 possible, and uh, and I think like uh, you know that was a I think that's why the lyrics were so hard because I wanted it to be really clear, but I didn't want it to be, but I didn't really have the content for it before the pandemic because I feel like a lot of the reflections that came like I was saying you know just gratitude for for being alive and gratitude for having a family even if I can't see them you know like uh, you know brothers and sisters and good parents and good friends and um, I think all a lot of that like gratitude seeped into the lyrics and and I was also feeling like you know pretty ragged but kind of like okay with it you know like not needing everything to be perfect or not needing like um, I don't know just being more acceptance and more kind of like how you'd feel after like a long run, just kind of worn out, but kind of, kind of in a good way, you know, yeah, like, like you're tired, but the endorphins are kind of kicking in. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Or like, you know, that, that, that something about like, I kept coming back to these like images of being divested or something where you're like, you know, holding nothing or, you know, there's no kind of, um, no, not wearing anything, not like no clothing defining you or, you know, just like the sturdiness in your, in your spirit or something. And, and I think, you know, a lot of that was, was, um, yeah, grew out of, grew out of, you know, just everything I was reflecting on during the, you know, April, May, June. Yeah. Yeah. It does come off like, I, I think it comes off like your happiest record. I mean, I don't know if it's all truly happy when you get really deep into it, but the overall tone of it, there's definitely a sort of optimistic tone to it that I think maybe some other albums took a little bit less to. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it was, um, I think that was like, that was the, you know, I knew I wanted to make a brighter thing. And then, you know, it just took a couple of years to be like, what does that mean to me? Like, how can I access that in a way that feels true to me and it doesn't feel corny? And sometimes when, you, when you're chewing on a problem like that, you end up learning a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about like, you know, the variation, you know, happy is like the you know broadest possible 
um, word for that, you know, those variations of feeling like relief or, or um, you know, gratitude or acceptance or, you know, these things that can kind of fit inside that umbrella word of happy. And so it's just kind of finding those, um, I guess those like cl- things that, you know, the, the, the sharper definitions within that umbrella term that, that felt like, you know, we just did some soul searching and, and found those access to those things, you know, and cause I wouldn't want to make like a, you know, I, I wouldn't feel super, maybe, I mean, why not? Who cares? Life's short. But I, I don't think I would, you know, be inclined right away to make like a, it's Friday, you know, let's yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't expect necessarily like a Fleet Foxes like party album. <laughs> but hey, maybe, why not? That sounds like a fun challenge. <laughs> well, I mean, even before when you were talking about um, like trying to not go so in the other direction from Crack Up that it felt like you were just missing Crack Up. Yeah. It was making me sort of think, sort of like, yeah, like I I don't, I would be shocked if Fleet Foxes, you know, was coming out in 2020 with like a synth pop album, you know? Yeah. And like that is maybe what it would feel like to some people as like a rebuke almost. And I, I, I'm understanding that's not at all what you were trying to do. Yeah, totally. And, and that, that was, you know, and that was like a creative, um, you know, uh, constraint that at times was a little bit like, you know, um, you know, a bit like, you know, making a, Star Wars 4 or something, or I guess Star yeah. Wars the first one, but you know, it's like a little bit of like sequelitis where you're like, how do I keep this going and keep it fresh? It's tied to the last thing, but not have it repeat too much. How do you keep the magic while staying within this, you know, template? And that can be a little bit, you know, a little bit of a, a, um, a mental, like a heavy lift mentally sometimes. And then sometimes you can find ways to make it work, you know? And then, you know, I think... I think these two records, Crack Up and Shore, are, are a pair to me, and and I I do relish the opportunity to make make something next that feels like the start of a different chapter, maybe. Yeah. Uh, was it? I was going to ask before. Was it always the intention to have another vocalist on the first song? No, I, the first song was going to be Sunblind. Oh, okay. But it wasn't really like I didn't really have that song in any kind of like interesting shape until like five weeks ago when I, <laughs> when I finally wrote the chorus and like then we recorded the drums and all the other instrumentation like that that day and the next day and it just came together super fast and I was like this is the best song in the album this is the best song ever done and, it, and you know it was just this kind of wild thing but there was some version of Sunblind I was always trying to make it work as the first song and then kind of in the process of that I wrote the Waiting in Waste High Water song and then I was like oh, this is a nice, you know, lights going down in the theater, everyone enter the room kind of song. You know, it's just a little like, here we go kind of vibe. And, and But I didn't really feel good singing it. And then around the same time, someone sent me Uwade, a clip of her singing Mykonos by Fleet Foxes on Instagram. And then, you know, worked out that she was close enough to the studio where we were at that she could come record. And oh, wow. um, so I didn't really... You know, it, it was more like that song wasn't working. I thought it was a cool intro song. It wasn't really working with my voice, and it, but it wasn't until I heard her that I was like, oh, that's actually perfect. You know? mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And it does kind of sound like that now that you put it that way, it does kind of sound like everyone's kind of getting into their seats and like, we're kind of settling in totally or, and then Sunblind is much like more forward momentum yeah. kind of thing. It kind of sounds like the song uh, waiting does. It kind of sounds like the kind of thing that might be playing like just on the PA, like as people come in. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Like that's, that's the kind of mood that I get from that. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, so there was only a three-year gap between Crack Up and Shore, but there was, as I mentioned, a longer one between Crack Up and Helplessness Blues. Um, I forget if it was like seven or eight years, but what were some of the things that um, were going on in that time? Like, what, what were you up to at that time? Um, you know, we toured for like a year and a half on Helplessness Blues, and that ended in 2012. And then 2012, I just kind of like, I had some health issues. Um, that whole, you know, experience of those two albums have been quite a ride. And then it, you know, for a young guy, I think I was like 25, 26 when all that wrapped up. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, maybe that was my music career and, <laughs> and uh, I can do something else now. I was like a little bit traumatized by that Helpless's Blues tour because it was just like so dark um, for many reasons. And that I was just like, I just didn't want to I just couldn't carry all that stuff anymore. And then I just put it, I just had to put it down. And, and I, I was kind of like, I think in 2012, I was really realizing, you know, I'd been very monomaniacal about music as a teenager and in my early twenties. And then I just felt kind of like a, not much of a full person. You know, I didn't really like know how to cook or I didn't really have any hobbies or I didn't like exercise or, you know, my friendships had kind of like, you know, my, I only knew the, you know, basically the people in the band because we were on tour for four years, you know? Yeah. And so I was just kind of like, I guess I just needed some time to build myself up outside of music. And so I, I just, um, 2012, 20, and then some of 2013, I spent a lot of time like traveling and doing backpacking trips and like really being outside in a way I hadn't been in a while. And then 2013, 2014, 2015, I went back to school um, and I started an undergrad as kind of a, an experiment, you know, I, I didn't know I would end up, I thought, um, that I really wanted to finish that and just, and, and just have seen that through. And then Joanna Newsom asked me to, um, open for her on a tour in early 2016. Oh yeah. And I'd been writing songs for, you know, for the whole time I was in school, I was writing songs and like, you know, exploring New York and going to museums and, um, you know, living, like surfing a lot and, you know, like living in uh, my life. And, and, um, so when she asked me to do that tour, then I stopped going to school and thought, you know, I need to get ready for this tour. And then I'll just make another album in 2016. And then after that tour is over and then did that. And then 2017, 2018 was just on tour. And yeah. Cause okay. Cause that, cause that album ended up being crack up. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when you went on tour with her, um, I think it was only West coast. Am I right in that? It was West coast in Europe. Okay. Cause I was, I was going to say, I know there's a reason why I knew it was like out of the question that I'd be able to make it to that. <laughs> um, although sidebar, can we just, can we just talk a bit about how fucking amazing her concert was last year? Oh my God. That was insane. Was so good. Cause that was like, that was like the first time that I, 
that I had responded to something of, of yours on Instagram. And I think you told me that like you were the the one person who like wooed when Go Long started. And yeah, <laughs> that's such an incredible song. It really is. I remember the first time I heard it too. And I was just like, so bowled over by it. And I remember the first time I heard um, Esme, which is like my favorite song of hers. Beautiful song. Um, because I, that was back in like the days when you could find random like live bootlegs online. And I remember she started playing it like years before Have One On Me came out. Oh yeah, and, that's right. Yeah, and I was like, cause there was like one concert she sang it at in like 07 and it was this new song, this untitled song. And I was like, what is this? I was like, it was just so beautiful. And so I was so excited when it came out. Of Actually, I remember that too. I remember seeing a video or something of yeah, of her playing a new song before. But being that song and I'm being totally in love with it. And then it was like, not as big of a, I mean, I, I love that song, but when the album came out, it, it was that weird thing where it just wasn't, didn't feel like as much of a centerpiece of the album as an album than I was expecting it to be from hearing it, you know, for a couple of years beforehand, you know? Yeah. Um, I was expecting it kind of because it kind of ended up similar to how it is on the the, the super you know unadorned and stripped back, and I wasn't expecting what the arrangement would be, and it was I love that song. Yeah, I just there's something about that song that I just like if it comes on my shuffle or something, it's just so beautiful. It's just like that mel. I don't know how she does it. Those melodies. Yeah. I was so I was so hoping she'd play it live then because it's a solo song anyway, but. Yeah. I think it's, I feel like it's a hard one because she only sang it like twice on that entire tour. Right. Um, but yeah, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, it, it did maybe seem like it would be this big dramatic centerpiece and then ended up sort of being this, just this little kind of ballad towards the end. Kind of like when Divers was starting to perform live and that did end up being the centerpiece. Mm -hmm. And that exactly, you know, yeah. kind, of, exactly. kind of feels like it is. Yeah, um, she did that at like Pitchfork Festival or something like that. Yeah, I think she did that one and maybe Leaving the City. Yeah, um, and then those were the two yeah. kind of singly. Yeah. Oh god, I just she's so good. <laughs> I did invite her to to talk to me, but her people were like, "Yeah, she's um she's not doing interviews right now." Yeah. Um, which I get because it's not like she has anything to plug right now. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I could talk about her for like hours. But um, um. <laughs> back to my yeah, conversation. Sure. Um. Okay, so so that's what you're up to during that time. And um, I kind of love that Joanna Newsom was sort of the one to like almost kind of usher you back into making music. Yeah, I couldn't, there's no way I could say no to that as, as a, you know, I think she's the best musician alive and that I'm like just lucky and undeserved of having any approximation, uh, pro being proximal to her in any way. So you weren't friends with her before that? Uh, well, I opened for her on tour for having one on me. Uh, okay. And then that's how we got to know each other. And then I did maybe three tours with her on that album. And then, um, and then, yeah, we kept in touch over the years. And then I went, you know, of course I would do it, do that anytime. Right. Yeah. When I saw her on Have One On Me, I think um, Alila Diane was opening. So that was lovely. Right. Sweet. Um, so are you someone, cause you mentioned that you were writing a lot of music while you were at school, even though I don't know, I don't know how much of it did or didn't end up on Crack Up, but are you someone who's like always writing even if you don't have an album as a target i think naturally yes you know i think that like if 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 um you know if i had um if i'd been born in, you know the son of an oil tycoon or something 
I, I would probably spend like a good amount of the day just making songs because it's stuff that I think about constantly. And it's not really stuff I think about in a way that I'm like forcing myself to. They're just thoughts that happen, you know. It's um, probably some subconscious conditioning from growing up the son of a musician and you know and then also just kind of um i don't know that's what i you know music songs can feel like big problems to solve but there's also these weird aspects of them that have you know an element of chance or chaos that you kind of get addicted to because sometimes you'll get something great and sometimes you won't you know so i think like you know if um if I'm in a period where, you know, but then some, sometimes I'll, you know, because music has been in my career, I'll be tired from the career part and I won't work on music for a while, but I really feel the kind of like, um, I feel it's absence in those periods, even if it's like not necessary or whatever, you know, just to like have a crop rotation or something. Um, yeah. and I think that I, I'm definitely more productive by nature than I've been able to like release. I guess because the first album did so well that I had just had a much, you know, much more specific standards as to what everything needed to be after that. And I, you know, I think if, like I said, like if I was just, you know, if I didn't have a music career, I'd probably make some, I'd probably. Hmm. I mean, would you be someone, cause I sort of identify with this. Would you be one of those people who has like, 80 albums on Bandcamp with like no one listening? Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, I could be uh, for sure. Like I can write, it's just about like, you know, I, I feel like I've tried to release the stuff that felt worth releasing and it mm. felt like, you know, th there was an answer to the question like why, you know? Um, and, but I could for sure write more music, you know, I know how to put a, yeah. put a song together, but it, you know, not, I couldn't write, 80 incredible albums or something, you know, I've had trouble making just, you know, whatever I've made. So, um, so, so you, do you write like a whole bunch of songs before you end up writing ones that you think are sort of, as you say, worthy of being on an album? Um, it's sort of, you know, uh, there are just phases, you know, there's like, I feel like there's an absorption phase like a conceptualizing phase where you're like, okay, what kind of record do I want to make? I feel like I'm noticing that kind of comes first now hmm. as a kind of like, what's the vibe going to be? And then kind of listen to a bunch of stuff that kind of puts you in a mindset like that vibe. And then I'll have like, a, you know, then I'll just be writing on and off for like a year, like trying to write songs and find melodies and find, you know, but I'm often doing that, you know, um, just little bits and pieces and then and then there's a you know back burner subconscious process of like how are these all going to get combined you mm -hmm. know and then you know like sunblind that was cannibalized from four different songs you know with all those little sections were parts of you know the strongest parts of four individual songs and that's always how i've done it and it's not it just ends up feeling natural that you just have this kind of I don't know, it's like a Rubik's cube or something where there's all the pieces are there, but you know, you're just, you just takes a while to slot them all into place, you know? Yeah. Are you a, are you a music first person or do you write lyrics and music together? I'm always a music first person. I feel like if I were a lyrics first person, um, I wouldn't make the music as melodic 
because the melodies to me, I mean, Joanna is an amazing example of someone who can kind of like nail both in this crazy way. But yeah. I feel like if, if, you know, if I were, if I, if, you, if I had to take six months and think about like what kind of lyrical, if I'm just thinking lyrics first, I think that would be a different style of writing than I've done so far. And it wouldn't be tied to melodies in the same way that this music has been. Um, but I've always been music first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's good that we, we live in a time where you can do something like you did this year where you just sort of power through recording an album. I mean, as you said, Sunblind came together five weeks ago. Yeah. And here we are one week out from the album. Yeah. Um, I forget who I was talking to. I think it was um, Raphael Stendel Preston from Braids was sort of talking about how amazing it is that we live in this time where if she has an idea, she can just like record it. Yeah. And then you can just, you can play with it later or you can throw it away, but you you can get it down. Whereas before you wouldn't have been able to do it as swiftly as you can now. Yeah, definitely. So that's, that's definitely a useful, a useful thing of the time we live in. And you have access to a studio, which is always nice. Yeah, that was a godsend, getting access to those studios in July and August for sure. Yeah, because it looks like when you look at the credits that it was recorded at quite a few studios. Yeah, I mean, last year we you know, we started in Aaron Dessner's spot upstate. He was nice to let us use that for two weeks. And then that was just kind of like getting, you know, getting, laying the groundwork for certain things. No like kind of final tracking or anything except for one song with the drums. Um, and then... We went to, you know, we were working in small groups, so we went to, it was kind of actually cost effective to go to all these places, more so than, you know, trying to lug a huge ensemble around. So we went to the studio in France that I knew had great acoustics and that, you know, great equipment, um, just as kind of a, you know, wish fulfillment kind of thing. We did that for two weeks in October. And then we kind of set up shop at this Vox place in LA from November to February, um, you know, in their bigger space for the most part doing drums with Chris Bear. And then, um, and then they have a smaller studio now that was a lot cheaper. So I was able to just kind of work in there by myself, um, working on stuff for like weeks at a time. And I was kind of, I kind of hit a wall in that period, like January, February, just being like, you know, all had a ton of ideas that being executed and Chris had done an amazing job, but I was kind of like, you know, trying to write stuff in the studio, which is a little tough. And, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that kind of like traveling around, globetrotting, you know, recording world of 2019, um, that all vanished. And then I ended up finishing it, you know, um, finished all the lyrics just sitting on in my car on the side of the road. And then, and then uh, you know, found this place, Homer's spot in Long Island City to finish it. Hmm. So it sounds all very serendipitous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the first Fleet Foxes record. Um, I was going. I was going to say it. It always sort of amazes me that you're only like seven years older than me, <laughs> because I feel like Fleet Foxes has been so present for most of my music, you know, searching life. Um, so you were. I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. I think you were 22 when the first Fleet Foxes album came out. Yeah, that's. Made it sort of it's sort of wild <laughs> yeah i mean i guess i you know i i was really committed you know from like 14 to doing music you know so mm. it was kind of like um you know i finished high school at a community college i didn't go to college 
out of high school. I finished high school when I was 17. I just started playing in bands, um, you know, and then writing songs. And I was in Seattle, so it was just natural. You know, you could rent an apartment for $300 a month and live by yourself. Yeah. And and um, it was, and I, I had a real, like, I was felt pretty ambitious and pretty, like, um, set on the doing this, to, to, you know, as fully as I could, you know, and the infrastructure in Seattle was perfect for it because it was like a little music playground where there was like, you know, you, you knew exactly what the, you know, first of three on a Monday night, you know, you, you knew the you knew the venue that if you did well there, you knew the next venue up, you know, maybe 50 people would show up if you did it on a Friday night. And then, you know, it was just like this kind of, it was a safe world for that kind of thing, you know, and then Sub Pop was there and Barsook was there and obviously great musical heritage. So I, I, it was like, it is kind of wild that, it, you know, I was 22, but I'd been pretty dead set, you know, for, yeah. for I guess six years leading up to that. Yeah. And after four albums now and, um, what would that make it uh 12 years i guess of releasing music mm. um or actually 14 if you count the eps um does it still surprise you when your work resonates or, or does well this is fairly surprising to me i mean, feel <laughs> like i feel like um i didn't know what to expect like reception wise for this album you know because it was like um <clears throat> i was working i felt like i was working as you know, as hard as ever on something and feeling like kind of like there were stakes, but also like since touring went away, it was also just like, eh, I'll just finish this album and get it out there and do it, do it work as hard as possible, but not like this is going to win me a Grammy finally. Or <laughs> um, uh, so I wasn't really sure what to expect. And, and I, you know, I, I guess like when I was younger, you know, of course I'm like anyone over, over 25 isn't doing anything relevant. Um, and when, <laughs> and, and, you know, just being a music nerd kind of being like, there's only ever two albums in a discography and they've, they've really got to do, you know, really try hard to, to kind of get past that. You know, it's hard to kind of, it's hard to find a lane that you can grow into and that you can keep the quality up. And obviously someone like Joanna, you know, I feel like, um, she's not, subject to those petty realities you know and she's just going to be making great music she's such an original that she's just going to be making great music on her timeline for as long as she you know cares to grace us with it you know yeah i mean it's kind of like fiona apple-esque in that way yeah just sort of like i'm gonna put something out when i want to and no sooner yeah totally And, and you know and that's a different mindset than the kind of like nme mojo magazine mindset you're in when you're like 18 you know um so i guess like it it feels to me like this is being well received and i'm like but i'm also in this like um kind of i've been in my bedroom for most of this for the last week (laughs) you know it's just so bizarre it's all happening on my phone or on my yeah it's just like such a weird um new thing to adjust to so you know i feel like I guess like seeing that pitchfork, like they posted on their Twitter, this thing that was like five, every record had a best new music. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like seeing that was like weirdly powerful in a way that I like never really expected it to be. Because mm-hmm. I don't really think about the old records that much, or I haven't been. I haven't been like because that's the other thing. Like, I think I've stayed a little bit in this kind of younger mindset because I've been afraid of you know buying a house or like you know kind of gr- afraid of growing up a little bit because I didn't feel like I'd done my um, the creative work that I wanted to do yet. And I had some associations with settling down or, you know, um, growing older that all, I just didn't think, um, didn't seem like they would help, you know, I just have certain, certain, you know, old things that I'm letting go of, you know, but certain, certain, um, delusions in that way. So, um, was the question if I'm surprised <laughs> that it's, was that kind of the question? Like, are you still surprised by it when your work does, does as well and resonates as much as Shore seems to be doing? Um, I am, I am pretty surprised. Like I kind of felt like, you know, cause that was the thing. I mean, that's been my main anxiety since the first album is, is like, you know, I just felt like if you get lumped in with this kind of fad, you're screwed, you know? And I was like, I don't, you know, I don't, I need to find a way to make this, you know, like creatively sustainable and, you know, not get swept up in this, in whatever, you know, just, I don't want to be a relic of a, of, of a certain era, you know, like if radio had stopped after Pablo honey, you know, yeah, it's like, they're just another grunge band, you know, um, or a post grunge band, you know, Britpop, whatever. And they obviously found their incredible way out of that quagmire, you know? But, um, <clears throat> so, you know, I've tried to do that in my own way while staying kind of true to, you know, within the realm of my taste and, and you know, trying to write good songs and be be, be honest and, and be clear. And um, so I think I am surprised, but it also is like, um, I don't know. I want, you know, I want people to, to like it. And I work really, really hard on it. And, um, you know, if this, I don't know, it feels like solidifying in a cool way. Like maybe, you know, even though we won't be able to tour for a year, I, I feel like since people seem to be liking this album, uh, that feels more like uh, more exciting to me. You know, like if, if this album came out and was like universally panned and it was like, that was the last thing that had happened before a tour a year from now, you know, yeah. it would be like kind of a scary spot to be in because who would go to that show, you know, but if it's like, if it's instead like this thing came out, that meant something to people and then they get to like see a live in a year or something, you know, that feels like that feels good, I guess. Well, especially because, you know, all of us who are listening to it and all the other new music that's coming out, we're listening to it in this isolation. Yeah. So if we end up a year from now being able to go to like one show, that could, you know, that could just make that experience so much more powerful. I I totally agree. I'm excited for that. Yeah. And I mean, I know you said, and I, I tend to agree that there probably won't be like regular touring next year, but I'd be, I'd be surprised if people don't start doing, you know, like shows here and there. Yeah. There'll be some stuff for sure. There'll be some kind of thing. It's just um, of working out the logistics of that. Cause you know, a tour like crack up, you know, I had to front so much money to make that possible. Yeah. You know, just 
buying all of the flight cases and paying everyone for rehearsals, paying all the crew and, you know, just like the startup costs for like a big production are insane. So it's, I can't, I can't even fathom it. It's crazy. And then you're kind of like paying, you're, you're in this period where you're just hoping it goes well because you're paying off this pretty big debt that you've sunk into it, you know? Right. And then, so that was a source of anxiety for many months, you know? Um, and so it'll be interesting to see like, cause you know, even the things I'm looking into about like, things we can film you know when you total up the budgets it's like how do we do this you know like how can we you know make this youtube video <laughs> yeah no i mean i'm a i'm a film i'm a film person i know it's very expensive so expensive so it's just a matter of like i, I just gotta find find ways to do it in ways that make financial sense i think yeah um, yeah, coming from a, a, a film school perspective, I, I can tell you that it's uh, it's very, very hard to yeah. hire anyone for your projects because everyone is really expensive because it's expensive work. Totally. So yeah, I can't, I can't even fathom the costs at a, at, a, at a higher level than what I was doing in college. <laughs> um, so you mentioned also briefly that you were a little bit sort of concerned before about whether you had sort of fulfilled your creative duties to yourself almost. Um, do you have other artistic ambition besides music? Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, you know, I think it's like, um, I do. I mean, I don't, I don't know what, like, I think music that that's where the, you know, those are the talents that I've cultivated, I guess, like singing and writing songs and, and playing instruments. And, you know, even the stuff like, you know, the business side of it, just like, you know, knowing how the industry works and how touring works and all that stuff, you know, that's like where my expertise is. Um, I feel like if I were to retrain, even if I were to retrain for like electronic music, I can't expect the same results within a couple of years, you know, as like an Aphex twin or something. Right. Um, that's just like presumptuous and kind of disrespectful to the genre, you know? Um, so it's like, uh, I feel like I, un like, I feel like I understand, I'm at this point where like I understand what I want to do and how to do it and, and, and not be like missing the mark or something, you know, like I can set out. Um, and I look at someone like my brother, who's a filmmaker, you know, and, and just seeing his creative development over the last, um, over the last 15 years and just being like, you know, seeing how, how good they can get something, how quickly they can do it now, you know, just the expertise they have. Mm -hmm. um, and that's inspiring, but I can't presume that I can just transfer from film, from music to film and it would be, you know, there's like retraining that would need to happen. And, and I think like, um, you know, that's, I think like, I like this, you know, idea above somebody kind of in a Jiro dreams of sushi kind of way, you know, refining something to and and making something your life's work and not being a not being a dilettante, you know. I think there yeah. are too many dilettantes in the world these days, but just like people who think they can do anything cuz cuz a lot of it is just like exists as like an Instagram post or something. Yeah. Um and, but I would be into, like, if I ever had a, like a house that had some land on it, I would be into having like a, um, like a sculpture studio. <laughs> oh. I think it would be fun to make 
just as like a weekend, you know, blow off steam. I don't know, make make some weird weird art objects or something. Is that something you've done before? No. But oh. <laughs> I wouldn't take it seriously. It would just be like a fun thing to do. Right. But um I don't know. I just want to feel like an, like like uh, I have some some expertise and I get to employ it, yeah. Yeah, so I guess now that you feel like you're maybe a little closer to like you said kind of knowing what you're doing and doing it, um maybe you would just like to sort of luxuriate in that for a while. Because <laughs> yeah, you can apply that. You know, if someone came to me tomorrow and was like, can you do the soundtrack for this thing? I'd feel way more qualified to do it than I would have 10 years ago, you know? Sure, yeah. Of like writing the music, but also knowing how to execute it and knowing what, you know, a little bit more like, yep, I can do that. And less kind of like, you know, pawing around in the dark for some perfect melody, you know? Yeah. So I'd actually be surprised if, if you go through your, the rest of your career without doing some sort of film scoring, that seems like it would be something of interest to you. I would love to do that, absolutely. Mm. I know, I was just talking to Mary Lattimore and I was like, how have you not scored a film yet? And she's like, I know, I really, really, like, I really want to. Like, it seems like that's sort of a next frontier for a lot of musicians because it is sort of like, you get to use your expertise, but in a, in a very new way. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, Quickly before we go, I did want to mention, because I feel like I'd be remiss without mentioning it, that you, uh, you, as you mentioned, it is such a different time right now and like all this reception of the record and the reactions are un unfurling on your phone. Your Instagram game is pretty strong. Nice. <laughs> Thanks. I don't know where it came from because I feel like I've probably followed you on Instagram for a while and then I feel like suddenly during this pandemic, <laughs> you're just like, you just like crap. took off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if you, you yeah you cracked open. Um, I feel like it all started. I don't know if it really did, but it felt like it all started with your with your basket holding. Yeah, <laughs> was that just like was that just like you kind of shit posting a little bit? No, because like because I know you genuinely. I I don't think you're like lying. I know that you probably genuinely were doing that, but then like it became like basically a meme. I know. It's so it's kind of weird. <laughs> Super weird. Like I feel like. Because okay, because the story game, I, I, I can't. I'm not gonna get into TikTok. That's like not my speed. But the story thing when no, that came out, it was like, it was fun to build these sequential things. These to have these little narratives going. That, you know, we're building on each other. If you were paying attention, and I was pretty into it on in 2018 on tour. Um, but I think it was like I think I turned to the story thing if I'm a little bit fried, as a kind of like release valve, and I, I'll just be like making funny jokes or building weird stories about like dancing bugs or, you know, we, I don't know, just whatever weird thing is, is that, you know, cause I was pretty fried by that point on that tour. Yeah. And then, and then I was just fried from lockdown. And, and I mean, I think that that the cage Templar basket grip is like an, is an, is an excellent and intuitive solution to me to like a pretty bad, um, design that we've been living with for decades you know oh it's oh it's horrible <laughs> <laughs> like you've identified a problem and i think i think the whoever they are who make these baskets need to listen to you for sure it's an imperfect solution but it's a solution is it, it's pointing to you know the need for a solution and i think right. that's why it resonated it's, right. it's um we've just been living with, with this for too long <laughs> You know, and it's polite on humanity. Everything we need to rethink everything right now. You know, I mean, this hey, is, we're remaking the world. Starting with the, the plastic baskets at the supermarket. Totally. Starting there, that's you know how you do one thing is how you do everything. We've been in, we've been holding the basket wrong 
as a society for the last decades you know yeah i mean how long have we even had these baskets i don't when's the last time they even changed you know totally they I'm, need to change for sure i have yet i i will admit i've yet to try the cage templar method is it less exhausting on your arm it really depends on like if you're doing if you're doing a cross grip then um oh, we're getting technical now <laughs> You know, it depends on the basket. Some of these, some of these, you know, some baskets are grace, grace, gracious, and they have they're kind of a thicker plastic, and so you can rest them in the crook of your arm and have it not dig into your 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 tendons or you know your, mm. your, your your. But then some of them, so with baskets like that, if you're doing a cross grip, your hand is on the the opposite end of the basket. You're kind of holding it like a surfboard or something. There's a little bit of hip support. You know, I can carry like 50, 60 pounds of groceries that way, no problem. But wow. it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis. I think like, um, you know, I think there's a perfect solution on the horizon. And um, that's going to be my next, like, you know, I'm, I'm talking to some VC guys about this and yeah, got some angel investors on board. Yeah, I was going to say, this sounds like a, a case for Shark Tank or something. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The Mark Cuban in there. Yeah, they'll be like, is that the Fleet Foxes guy? Shark Tank? They'll be so confused. How he's um, <laughs> plus, you're very active on Instagram. I mean, you were nice enough to, to sort of start replying to me, but even long before I had this show, you, you, you replied to me sometimes, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. So, I mean, that's nice. Not, not everyone is so as, like, engaged with their audience so i think yeah i mean it's really it's gratifying to me i think like it's you know and i think in lockdown you know it's been not been a lot to do i've been definitely spending more time on my phone than i than i am used to i know i think everyone has for better or worse yeah but better to be like talking to people cracking jokes than like you know just scrolling through the news constantly that's true yeah i mean i know that you probably have quite a few followers and some people have a lot of followers and it could probably be just beyond like mind-boggling to have to reply to people but at the same time yeah that engagement is sort of so intrinsic to what we are missing right now for sure and like you say just like aimlessly scrolling i would imagine that actually engaging with people is way better for sure totally um well thank you so much for talking to me um thank you it was yeah it was such a pleasure um i'm so glad that you agreed to, to to come on and talk to me i'm sorry that i bombarded your dms <laughs> no that's great thank you so much dude. um i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today and uh i had fun yeah me too uh have a good rest of your evening and uh mm -hmm. yeah thanks again yeah thank you dude take care thanks you too bye